I felt thank you for having out of Pickerington. Um, it's great to see you guys here at the Word of the Lord. Um, I'd like to open in prayer. We're going to be in Titus 2, 11 through 15 in a few minutes, but let's start by praying to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this nation that our debt has been paid by Christ's sacrifice um, for us on our behalf. Give us peace um, as we hear your word. Give me peace as I proclaim down into their hearts and minds that they would grow up in you. Um, so thanks again which is for me to be here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So thanks again. Like I said, we'll be in Titus uh, chapter 2, just continuing on. Um, hope everyone had a great Easter. Um, and I wanted to sit back and remember why we celebrate Easter, because that's going to be tantamount for what we're talking about this morning. Uh, so last week, I hope we all remember why we celebrated uh, Easter. It's a day to celebrate Christ's resurrection, a day we remember that Jesus Christ died on the Good Friday for sinners, of which we were numbered in. Then we celebrated his resurrection and later on his ascension, remembering he is reigning on high on our behalf. That's important to remember as we talked about this morning about him repaying our debt, because what we're going to talk about today, without that knowledge of our debt being paid, can easily become a list of do's and don'ts, even what you guys have talked about the last few weeks, when it talks about older men and younger men, Older women, younger women, and bond servants. All of these things must come down to our relationship with Jesus Christ. Out of that newness of life, actually what I preached about a few weeks ago when I was here last in Second Corinthians 5, out of the old self being buried in Christ's death and the newness we have after his payment of our sins, we are new creations in Christ. Out of that knowledge, we then act and work and have our being. Without that, everything we're going to talk about will become just a list of law and will not save us. So I'd like to start with reading Titus 2, verses 11 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all, unlawless, all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is God's holy and inerrant, sufficient word. Let us not disregard it when we read it and hear it. As an overlying summary, if I had to summarize this in one sentence, it'd be Christ's redeeming grace saves us from our old selves. And it trains us to live godly lives as we await Christ's certain return. Christ's redeeming grace saves us from our old selves and trains us to live godly lives as we await Christ's certain return. We're going to work through the text straight through. And through that, we're going to break it down into our position in Christ as new creations, 
by his grace in verse 11 and 14 to his instructions for us on how to live in this grace in verse 12. And then a third point, his encouragement to work and persevere by his grace in verse 13 and 15. And if we look at that outline, we can see right there that we are reminded first who we are in Christ twice. We are encouraged twice to persevere. We are only left for instruction once in that entire section. Meaning that this foundational premise is built on the grace of God and his work for us. His work for you this morning. His redemption, his love, his grace. So that's the outline we're going to go through. We're just going to read straight through as we exposit this. So starting in verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now this is a continuation, as I said, of your previous series. Josh and Alex spoke before. And this is a continuation idea that the grace has appeared, this grace of God. But what is this grace? Who is this grace? Is it some inanimate object or something just emanating from the Father? Is it some lifeless force? We know that can't be the case. From this scripture and the rest of scripture, what we've already read, as we'll jump to when we get to verse 14, this grace is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a person. This grace has a face. Now, how do we know that this morning? If I read this through, it just sounds like, oh, the grace of God, it's some action on our behalf. But no, this grace is a manifestation, it is when Christ came down, the second person of the Trinity, who has always been and always will be, came down and wrapped himself in flesh, lived the life we were meant to live, died the death we deserve to die, was buried for three days and was resurrected, and is now reigning on high. This is this grace we are talking about this morning, the grace of Christ. And like I said, we're going to read more about this in verse 14, but if you just pick that verse, it just seems so inanimate. But we read in John 1:14, the word became flesh, the logos, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. He is full of it. All of his being is full. God is so vast. But the first time we hear about him in John, it talks about him being light, the word eternal, and full of grace and truth. We also read in John 14, 9, talking about him having a face and being a person. When Philip asks, Jesus, can I see the Father? When can we see him? And Jesus answers him, whoever has seen me, Philip, has seen the Father. When we look on Christ, we see the Father's love. We see God. Nothing is missing. 100% God, 100% man was in Christ when he came down and appeared for us. That is the grace of God that has appeared. And we're going to move forward thinking about the bringing of salvation for all people. Christ came on a mission to do something. He came to accomplish a task. It would be accomplished, we read about in John 19.30, that Christ came to die. He came to present us this grace. A general calling for all people, it says, all people throughout all of history, 
would know the grace in Christ alone. That Christ alone is the salvation for all people, regardless of where you live, what class you're in, your occupation, your skill set, anything. This is a general salvation for all people. And it would be accomplished. Now, if we read this by itself, we can sit there and say, well, bringing salvation for all people, Christ came and died for everyone. Everyone will be saved one day. But we can't say that because we know in Scripture that that is not the case. God is a covenantal God. He chooses the chosen people out of the world, which we can see going all the way back when he chooses Israel. The same God has a pattern of choosing and loving a particular people. This general revelation is presented to all people. We ultimately know not everyone will come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. So our job today is to preach the good news of Jesus Christ and grace. All people need a Savior. The entire world needs to see this grace of God. We're going to get through this fact of the fact that our position is in Christ as in creation by his grace. Seeing right here that the grace of God has appeared and he brought salvation to the world and chose a particular people and says it in verse 14 for himself. This grace trains us to renounce our old way of lives. Why does it do that? Because we aren't who we used to be anymore. The opening point must be that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and everyone will be saved by alone. That is the way throughout all of history, everyone will be saved by bending the knee to Jesus Christ and submitting our lives, dying to our old passions and our old ways of life and submitting. Once we have done that, our position has changed. We are no longer our old selves. Our position in Christ are new creations through Christ as we have died with him. Our sins were nailed to that cross and we are set free to be new creations. That is what pushes us to the instruction. We do get instruction from Paul to Titus. A reminder of Titus is preaching to his congregation at Crete. This book was primarily written to them and to Titus. They would hear this. That they were to be reminded first who we are in Christ before we're to do anything. Paul typically when he write, reads his letters has an imperative, an indicative section, I'm sorry, who we are. Then out of who we are in Christ, he then says, okay, now do this. As a simple example, I was not always married. Before I was married, I didn't do the things I did after I was married. That's super simple. But that's the way it is. Once we change from death to life, once we change from old self to new self, we are new. So we act differently. We don't act like we used to be. Why? Because that's not fitting for us. Just like if you lost a bunch of weight and you worked out really hard, you don't go back to that. Because why? You worked hard, but you don't fit that anymore. You have to buy new clothes I have to buy a new ring when I get married. It symbolizes something. Because I'm not who I used to be anymore. I make new decisions for more people because of who I now am as a husband. Same thing when I became a father. 
I didn't make the old decisions anymore. Similarly, in Christ, we do not live as we used to live because it doesn't have the same taste. It should not have the same taste to us. Our sin is what nailed Jesus Christ to the cross. Our sin was why he came. He came to love us and provide grace for us. So that's where we get to verse 12. This grace appearing in Christ trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions into the self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. As I said, our first point is our position in Christ as new creations by his grace then instructs us for us on how to live in this grace as new creations. It's always an as-because effect. We do what we do because of this. So the grace doesn't just leave us as we are. It then transforms us to be who we were meant to be, who God created you to be before the fall. Holy, loving, true. So we renounce our ungodliness. We push it away. We utterly abandon who we were. We're instructed then to live in his grace, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. If we look back through your previous study, you've seen these pretty much the same words. You see self-controlled, the older men and younger men. Uh, You see be respectful, um, be pure, be patient, to work diligently. You see the same truth, that we are called to be different. And remember in Titus 1 verse 12, Paul quotes one of their own prophets to the Cretans saying that the Cretans are called liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So this list is meant to say, hey, you're these new people now. Be different. Look different than the people you're surrounded by because you're in Christ. Don't be like your neighbors. Don't be like the world because the world has not seen this beautiful face of Jesus Christ. They haven't seen the grace of the Spirit. It's been there. They just don't see it as lovely. They love their old ways. We do not love sin, so we abandon our old ways. I abandon who I used to be in Christ alone. I live by faith in Jesus Christ and his work for me. And I live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life. That's what we're meant to do as Christians. We're meant to look and be different because we are different. Christ has done these things. And we read these lists, and this is very concise. If you read other lists, which Paul presents, there's a long laundry list of sins. You can read Colossians, Ephesians, and Galatians all have a list like that of who we used to be. But thankfully, we are no longer those things. And unfortunately, as sin still clings to us, we are not fully consummated until Christ returns in this present age. We cling to Christ as he works on us and through us by his Holy Spirit for his glory. When we look at these lists and when we see that maybe we have fallen back into our old worldly lusts and passions, we cling to Jesus begging for forgiveness and he is faithful and just to forgive us because that sin has been paid for. There's no shame in front of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he took on our shame and our guilt, which we remembered on Easter Sunday last week. So live in this grace today. 
live as a new creation. So as we've seen the first two verses, we've already seen our position in Christ as new creations and then an instruction for how to live in this grace as new creations in a world in the present age that is an enemy of that. So as I said, we get a position, we get instruction, and then point three, encouragement to work and persevere by his grace. Which this is kind of going to go back and forth. We're going to see these same things again in the end. This is a present age, meaning this age is not the end of it all. The age we're living in now, the age where sin still clings to hold us, the sin where we still have death and mourning. That age will end. We have encouragement in that, and we can see that because of Easter Sunday, because the day Christ, we remember, was resurrected and sits enthroned on high now. That's encouragement. Paul reminds his people and tells Titus to remind the Cretans and by proxy us through the word of Jesus Christ, which is applicable today, that this age is ending to live as self-controlled, upright, and godly people. Because that's who you are. That is who you are this morning. Out of that imperative, out of that fact, everything we do today and tomorrow and next month is true. The word of the Lord is sufficient and it is true and it will never change, will never fade away. The promises we have in Christ as being loving, loved and cared for and him being faithful on our behalf to forgive us is true. I belabor that because if we read the next sentence... We're waiting for something. The encouragement doesn't end with just the present age. It says in verse 13, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing and glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is not the end. We have a concrete, blessed, beautiful hope in the fact that Christ will return one day for us. And we know that because he said that. He told his disciples, I will come again for you. All authority, it says in Matthew, is given to you today to go and to build my kingdom here. And behold, I am coming back. It says in John, before he dies on the cross, don't worry, I'm coming back for you, for his people, the people he purchased on Calvary. Out of the love that the Father and the Son has for you, be coming back for you. And that is a blessed hope, a good and approved and happy hope. It's not wishful thinking. It's not like, oh, well, maybe someday. No. He's coming for you. So live a godly life today as is fitting for your station, as is fitting for a new creation. Do not fall back to who you used to be because it's not fitting for you. What is fitting is to be self-controlled, upright, righteous, blameless, loving. The fruits of the Spirit, which Christ has filled perfectly for us, is embodied in us, read Galatians, because of his work for us by his grace. And he will appear again. 
the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here we're also seeing that God is authoritative. He is over all things, that Jesus Christ is just as powerful and just as equal as the Father. Around the same time, there's some people that put commas here, and they split them up, saying God the Father is one thing, the Savior Jesus Christ is another thing. But no, this is no, there's no break in the sentence structure here, if you read the original text. It is saying that God is Jesus, God is the Father, God is the Holy Spirit, though he co-eternal, all the same substance, but three distinct persons. He is a great and glorious God who sits right now with all authority mediating on your behalf this morning. He's offering forgiveness for all of us through his grace to the world. He is great, as we sang this morning. And that doesn't change. Our God is a God that does not change like shifting shadows. His word remains true. He will always be loving. He will always be present. God is omnipresent, God omniscient. Jesus Christ is these things. He indwells us with his Holy Spirit, teaching us, as we've read about, his grace teaches us and trains us to be more Christ-like through us. Now, if we read those simply by themselves, as we talked about, they can just be, hey, this is law. Just, just be better. Just do better. Be different. Don't be, as we talked about, the Cretans, liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons in a perverse generation in this age. But no, that's not what he's saying. It's not law. It's out of joy we do these things. We do this out of the joy to look forward to in Christ's return and as something to look back to in Christ's death. And my death on the cross with Christ, my sin was nailed that day so I can be joyful as a free person to live this way, to live an upright life. In grace. It's all about grace. Grace is not just becoming a blank slate like Christ died for us and now we're at net zero. No, grace is the fact of saying that I was the worst of the worst, as Paul said. I was so much in debt, I could never repay it. And then Christ says, but I paid it. And not only that, when the Father sees you in him, he sees his son. He sees a holy adopted child. That's what we're going to read about in verse 14. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, us, a particular people, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Christ came and gave himself for you today, church. He saw your face. He knew your sin. And he said, I'm going to die for this. The Father and the Son, before all creation, came together and said, we're going to make this plan. We're going to make it happen out of love. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself, to make us holy. We are a people of his own possession. We are his now. He is our prophet, priest, and king, our ruler who sits enthroned. That's the fact we live with. Going back to my first point, our position in Christ as redeemed holy people now for his own possession 
are then to do something. It's always go back to God's grace through Christ and saving you. Everything we do today has to come to that fact. Our position dictates what we do. And that's difficult to remember sometimes, but it has to be a remembrance every day that his mercies are new for us every day. When I fall back into my old ways, his mercies are new. His grace is still there. His grace is still sufficient. We cannot loosen ourselves from his grasp, as it says in Colossians. We are hidden in Christ. We are his possession. The word usage he used here in verse 14 is very similar to what he calls Israel when they're going to do the Exodus. It's the same word structure. They are a chosen people. Different, holy. First Peter puts it this way in chapter 2. You are a chosen race, race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. And it's the same it's the same God from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's the same story of redemption. This is the same God. He chooses a people. He loves them. He cares for them. He dies for them. And then he brings them newness of life so they can then live expectantly for him to return for them. Once again, we look, chapter 2, his instruction now, to live and be zealous for good works. Now, those good works, if you read Ephesians, are already planned for you to do in Christ. There's nothing left for you to do to earn salvation today. Today, when you go out, remember that. Remember you are secure in his love. That you are his holy possession. You are true. And that we are then supposed to be zealous and eager. We await eagerly. Not lackadaisically, not like, well, whatever happens now, but to be purposeful in how we live as this people. You see, the way other people see, other faiths see this equation is faith plus works equals salvation. I'm sure some of us have heard that equation before. But no, what we have here is faith. By grace through Christ alone equals salvation then works flow from that. James 2 says the same thing. Faith without works is dead. Abraham was justified by faith first, it says in Romans. Then he worked. His faith is what he worked out of. And he did it with zeal. He had a purpose, and he did it. Why did he do it? Because of Christ's redeeming love for him. That's how we work today. So we are a possession, we are, we are in Christ and held grasped by his grace. We are instructed to live by his grace and his encouragement. We are encouraged to work and persevere by his grace as we await his certain return. Christ's redeeming grace has saved us from our old selves and trains us to live godly lives as our new selves as we await Christ's certain return. Paul then instructs Titus to declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no one disregard you. So today, as we read God's word, as we sit there and think about this, as we meditate on it, as we pray about it, think about how we're living. Think about first why we're living. 
do you live as someone who's constantly trying to fulfill the law? I, I, even myself, I'll say I fall into it sometimes. I'm like, oh, who am I working this for? Why am I doing this? Am I doing it from a sense of gratitude of what's been given to me or love? And when I don't, I must repent and say, Christ did this for me. He loves me. He is sufficient for me. Always. With every act I do, is it characterized by a response of the grace shown to me in love? And then I work with zeal and I declare it with all authority, because all authority has been given to us and to the church in Christ to declare the truth. And these things are true. They will not change. So wait eagerly. As I close, I'd like to read the last two verses of the Bible this morning. These are the last words recorded of Jesus Christ to John, which we read in Revelation 22, 23-21. He, meaning Jesus, who testifies to these things, says, Surely I am coming soon. He says that three times in the last like six verses of the Bible. Surely I am coming soon. I am returning. So today, as we go out today, let us live with zeal as new creations, remembering that Christ's redeeming grace saves us from our old selves and trains us to live godly lives as we await Christ's certain return. If you wouldn't mind, please pray with me this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for all the ways you've blessed us in him with the great riches you've lavished upon us. Help us to remember these things, Holy Spirit, that you have fulfilled all requirements of the law, that you have died for us, You have forgiven us in Christ, that Christ lived the death I deserve to live, that he died for me, that he loves me, that he then was buried and was resurrected and now sits enthroned, mediating on my behalf, that all authority is his in heaven and on earth, that your word rings true. Lord, help us to remember these things in a present age that sees a lost and dying world. As we speak with our neighbors, help us to live godly and upright lives and deny our worldly old self's passions today as new creations in Christ alone. Grant us faith that you are returning and a certain hope that you will return soon. Thank you for your love. Thank you for everyone who could be here. Thank you for so many ways you've blessed us and provided us with breath, You are so good. You are so great, Lord. Help us to remember. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 